recorded at 10 to 5 on a Friday afternoon. With George Bendo, Josh Hayes and Song Lee, Joel Williams, Niall McCallum and Jake Starford. The Jogcast September 2018 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jogcast. I'm Josh and joining me in the studio are Niall and Joel. Hello. Hello. How are we doing? We're all right. I'm yeah. apparently here twice, so I'm a bit uh, yeah, confused and excited. Well, no, I, I've taken my glasses off and I feel I'm... Ah, it's, see, that's I, what it is. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what, it is. <laughs> that's what it is. So, yes, this is September Extra. We have a tie theme this week. Other than Unsung Lee and George Bendo answering your astronomical questions, we have some interviews with people from NARITS, the National Astronomical Research Institute of Thailand. So, Professor Boonruk Sarsun Thorntham is interviewed about NARITS, the Thai Princess Sarintuan's visit to JBO and the Thai Manchester collaboration, which actually I am part of. And Niall is now going to talk to my supervisor, Dr. Eamon Kerens, and one of our collaborators, uh, Dr. Super Chai Awafan, in this month's Job Bite. Today joining me is Eamon Kerens and Super Chai Awafan, who are the co-PIs of Spearnet, uh, a new group who are very interested in exoplanets and are going to be doing uh, multiple observations of these. And if we take it away and uh, you both want to tell me a bit about the collaboration. Sure, yeah, hi now. So SpearNet is the Spectroscopy and Photometry of Exoplanetary Atmospheres Research Network. Bit of a mouthful, so <laughs> SpearNet uh, sounds better. And basically it's spawned out of a collaboration between myself and SuperChai, which goes back a few years now, when SuperChai used to be here at Manchester with me. And we are, we're trying to prepare for a new era in exoplanet research. So just a few months ago, NASA launched TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. Maybe we can get on a bit in a moment to talk about what, what, what that involves. But it's, it's, it's going to detect maybe even up to 20,000 extrasolar planets using the transit method where a planet passes in front of a star and you see a slight dimming of that star as the, as the planet blocks it. Mm-hmm. So 20,000 is incredible. We're used to Kepler giving us a, a huge catch, but actually Kepler's found about 3,000 confirmed planets. So, okay. um, so, so 20,000 is quite 20, a, bit, a big, big, big improvement. <laughs> so we're going to go from a situation where, uh, and it's even, it's, it's even better than that actually, because the, the planets that Kepler gave us, many of them are just too far away mm-hmm. for us to follow up from the ground. Whereas TESS is optimised towards searching for planets nearer, uh, right, okay. relatively nearby planets around bright stars. So, so many of these 20,000 or whatever the final number is, we're going to be able to follow up from the ground if we've got enough telescopes. Right. That's where... It's not a sticking point. So we've... First of all, we've broached the question... How do we how do we decide which of these planets to follow up? You know, what's what's our ranking order? Mm-hmm. And and then the next question is, how do we assemble together a, a, a network of telescopes and optimally farm out exoplanets to be observed with these telescopes? And the idea is we're not just observing the exoplanets because obviously they've already been found. We're trying to detect atmospheres around these exoplanets using. Right a technique called transmission spectroscopy. I don't know whether you want to chip in here. and. and you can carry on. Okay, that's great. Right. So transmission spectroscopy. So we've got a situation where a planet is passing in front of a background star and it has an atmosphere. So 
the background star, some of the light from that background star will skim the planet, pass through the atmosphere and, and out the other side. So mm -hmm. we know here on Earth, we know that our atmosphere doesn't allow all light to pass through just transparently. Yes. Okay? In particular, yes. we have a blue sky. Why do we have a blue sky? It's because of a process called Rayleigh scattering. So that's where the, the sun's light is scattered in our atmosphere. So our atmosphere is quite opaque to blue light. It traps, it scatters the blue light, mm -hmm. and that's why the sky is blue. Whichever direction the sky you're looking, the blue light is coming from the sun, wherever the sun is. So the red light, on the other hand, is scattered much less, so that passes through without problem. So if you, if you see the Earth transiting in front of the sun, it actually looks a little bit bigger in blue light than in red light, because in, in blue light you've got the... the, the the surface of the Earth and the atmosphere like all blocking the light. Or shallow atmosphere exactly. around it. Exactly. So yeah. it's a bigger target. It's a bigger disk. So basically, if we if we study exoplanet transits at a number of different wavelengths, uh, we can actually see the signature of the atmosphere blocking the light at some wavelengths, allowing the light through at other wavelengths, and actually doing that over a large number of wavelengths, you literally build a spectrum of the planet's atmosphere, and that's really really exciting because. This technique has been used to identify molecules in the atmospheres of planets like water, like methane, ammonia, things like that. So now that, that kind of work tends to be done with, with at the moment, with large telescopes, sort of eight meter class telescopes. We're, we're, we're starting from a more humble position mm -hmm. of saying, okay, there's only a few very large telescopes in the world. TESS is going to give us possibly up to 20,000 planets. The smaller telescopes have a role to play here. There are many more of them. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to get large amounts of time on. And together, if they're used enough, you, you, you can effectively, over the time, get the same kind of science content, much more effort, but get the same kind of science content, ultimately, as a short amount of time on a larger telescope. So that's the whole SpearNet paradigm. We're using a large network, and a network actually, and many of the telescopes in the network are, are owned and operated by NARIT, which is uh, the major center for astrophysics in, in Thailand. So, mm -hmm. super, I don't know whether you want to say something about NARIT and the telescope network. Okay, um, NARIT is just a uh, new, it's still, I think, most of the uh, astronomers don't know about NARIT because we just, it's been just nine years. Mm -hmm. It's very really new, but it's like the Goldman in Thailand that we want to build a, a big institute in astronomy. And now we just died here, but we have around, I think it should be around 10 telescopes around the world. Okay. Most of them are still quite, when it's just a small telescope, it's the, the cost is not very expensive. Mm. But we have a network of small telescopes like Super Hydrant. We have one in Chile. One in USA, one in China, mm -hmm. one in Australia, and we have around four or five in Thailand. Okay. And in, it includes uh, our flagship of NARIS, is a uh, 2.4 meter. Now we have around 10 telescopes, and you know that the astronomer in Thailand, we have just less than 10 astronomers in Thailand. We have a lot of telescopes. Um, yeah. How mm -hmm. we have to use the this telescope, and the spinet is a good man because we we have tests target that is really bright for the bright enough for the point seven telescope mm -hmm. and that means we have the, a lot of targets to observe almost every day that means the telescope can be operated every day but now i think before we start the screen some some night is no no object no one 
it works in any object. And that's so there's a lot of access to the yeah. telescope yeah. sense. That's really good in terms of trying to get this off the ground. Absolutely, so. and TESS is an all-sky survey, so that's something right, okay. that's very different from Kepler. Kepler yeah. searched quite a lot, well, it sounds like a large area, 100 square degrees of sky. That's mm-hmm. a, that's, there are 40,000 square degrees of yeah, the whole sky, so it's a relatively small amount. So TESS has got itself into a, a, an orbit that will allow it to, to scan over time the entire sky. So actually having access to a large number of distributed telescopes mm-hmm. means that we can observe many of these yeah. targets. You can follow up in several different patches. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. So but it, a lot of the effort is working out how do we optimise this and y- your Jodcast audience may be very familiar with uh, Jake Morgan <laughs> and Jake, Jake for his sins <laughs> has got the task of actually uh, developing the the know-how for okay. how we how we optimally select these. Yeah. these so you're targets. whittling down twenty thousand or so planets to try and make it viable That's to do right, with yeah. the. That's right. Just ten ten telescopes at the moment, or is uh, there's uh, ten telescopes uh, that which uh, which NARIT operates. Mm-hmm. We're obviously you know applying for time and um, getting time on, on other telescopes. Yeah. But I mean, in principle, the. The, the algorithm we use to select can be expanded and scaled up mm. to however many telescopes. Oh, large and small. We rank really whatever based on how many telescopes you've got at the time, I guess. So, so we do it per telescope. So the, the, the okay. ranking list is done per telescope and even per which filter, which wavelength you're observing. Right, okay. So it is optimized both to the choice of telescope and to the choice of filter. And it can, it can allow us to, for instance, take a, a, an exoplanet target and decide which of the telescopes and which filter on a telescope would be the best selected. Oh, that's very but cool. then that follows through onto the last part, which is that once we get this data, we need to model it to try and effectively look at um, what the data is telling us about the spectrum of the atmosphere. So uh, another um, jogcaster, Josh Hayes, I'm tasking him with that job to develop a a code that will interpret the data that we're getting in and to provide us with an update on on what we believe the atmosphere looks like. Now, in early days of gathering data, he may well come back to me and say, well, my models tell me there's a whole bunch of stuff that could fit this data. Mm -hmm. So in that case... We're fairly, we're in a regime where we're quite ignorant. So we will right. then go back and queue up more observations at other wavelengths to try okay. to be less ignorant. So we, we, the whole philosophy of SPIRIT is to try and close that loop of ignorance mm-hmm. and to farm out the data as efficiently as we can to the, the assets that we have at our disposal. That makes, that makes perfect sense. How many frequencies have you sort of got access to? What are the frequencies you're looking at? Right, so uh, so we're dealing primarily at the moment in, in the optical regime. Okay. So, and because we're using small telescopes at the moment, we're accessing so-called hot Jupiters. So one of the big surprises in the field of exoplanets was that some of the early systems that were found were very unlike our own solar system. And in fact, many many of the example systems have Jupiter-sized planets mm-hmm. in an orbit that might be 10 times smaller than that of Mercury or 10 times, oh, wow. yeah, okay. 10 times closer <laughs> to the host star than that of Mercury. So the, the, these are so-called hot Jupiters. They're very close to their star, so they've mm-hmm. been bombarded by large amounts of radiation. They may have, at the temperatures of the top of their atmosphere, of order a 1,000 degrees Celsius. So that like makes that. them easier to see then as well. That makes them easier to see, but it also, mean, it also means that... The, the type of atmospheres we're looking for in the optical, we may we may see the evidence of the atmosphere in terms of its clouds. Mm-hmm. Uh, we might see hazes, 
in some cases we might find the atmospheres are, are quite transparent. The interesting thing is that some of these hot Jupiters, they exhibit all of these features. Right, like okay. Some are cloudy, some are hazy, some are relatively transparent. And that's, that in itself is quite, a, quite an enigma. You mm -hmm. know, why is it that these similar kinds of objects in principle so are quite different, different atmospheres? Mm -hmm. so, so that's kind of unlocking uh, a little bit more about the composition of planets, perhaps how they form, mm -hmm. etc. So that, that's so we're doing that in the optical, but a, a lot of interest in, in exoplanet atmosphere studies is also in the infrared, where okay. uh, uh, molecules like water and methane, etc., uh, have a lot more observable traces there. So there's no reason why in a few. I mean, there are fewer infrared detectors than there are optical detectors. So at mm -hmm. the moment, we're using optical, but in the future, yeah, we hope to use infrared as well. Okay. What is it that these sort of, like, obviously you're like looking at for certain atmospheres and there's going to be a comparison code to try and work out exactly what makes up these atmospheres. Mm -hmm. What can that then, what, what could you possibly glean from that about the host planet? Like, can it give you anything in terms of, oh, this could be a life holding planet? Like, really right. kind of buzzword yeah, sort of thing. But. Looking, <laughs> we're, starting, as I said, we're starting from humble beginnings, so we're, we're focusing more on, on hot Jupiters where we're not expecting to see evidence of life signatures mm -hmm. and uh, you know so we're looking at things like uh, is the atmosphere cloudy, hazy or is it relatively clear things like that mm -hmm. but th there's no reason why this technique transmission spectroscopy can't be used well it has been used to look for evidence of water in planets okay. uh, and in the future it could look for evidence of biomarkers so things like combinations of oxygen and methane which here on earth their their relative abundance is such only because of biological activity right, so they're okay. seen as bellwethers of the existence of biological activity so so as this is probably work that would need to be done on larger telescopes mm. than we're currently using but into the future as you look at smaller and smaller planets you could look for those mm. kind of biomarker signatures further afield you know we know that we, our industrial activity leaves its own fingerprint in the atmosphere of, of our earth yeah uh, if we you know if further in the decades to come as this as this technique gets uh, uh, more and more sophisticated more and more sensitive we could look for similar industrial fingerprints okay. in the atmospheres of so other like planets. alien space rubbish sort uh, of absolutely, like. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, alien pollutants yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. Uh, so but that you know that, that would be obviously quite a remarkable uh, mm. uh, finding so it really does have it's a, the excitement in this is is both from the sort of pure science end of understanding mm. planets understanding their composition and perhaps the, the clues from that yeah. about how yeah. they form through to yes the hunt for aliens in the, in the, in the far future admittedly mm. and of course we're, even though we've obviously got the planets in our solar system like that it's really difficult to know how planets formed there's like so from what i've heard there's so many different theories of on this and yeah like, so so anything to help narrow that down is uh, is certainly worthwhile. Absolutely, our, our solar system was until the, you know, 20 years ago the only data point on the architecture of solar mm -hmm. systems, and we're now finding the planets we found so far, as although we've found thousands of them, their architecture, the architecture of the systems, still looks generally very unlike that of our own solar system. Now that is probably simply a result of the fact that our techniques are not yet sensitive, very sensitive to further out planets. Mm -hmm. So we tend to find the ones that are nearer in. But it may also, it, it could turn out, who knows, that our, our solar system has a somewhat unusual architecture in some respects. So there are planet formation theories which 
kind of explain the arrangement of planets in our solar system? Uh, do they work for planets in other solar systems? Do planets after they form or during their formation move about a bit uh, because of uh, you know uh, migration effectively mm -hmm. affects? Um, um, uh, that would that would that would seem to. It, it, it's actually very difficult to try and explain why there are Jupiters very very close to their host star. Yeah. So many astronomers yeah. think that during the formation of planetary systems they migrate. So. All the data. whether they've moved in closer. Yes, yeah, so basically mm -hmm. the, uh, uh, the star and the planetary system begins its life as a, as a diffuse cloud of gas, collapses, and any slight rotation in that cloud, which it might have got from the gravitational effects of other nearby clouds, so one might be rotating clockwise and the other responds to anti-clockwise rotation, so as it collapses, if it has a small rotation, the collapse, like a figure skater pulling their arms in, will make it spin faster, make it rotate faster. That then will form the disk, the, the, the centre of the gas will collapse to form a star. The outer parts of the gas will, will, will form a disk around that star, and that's where the planets would form. Now, the planets themselves, as they form, the gas will tug on them, and the idea is that that tug could tend to drive them in a sort of spiralling inward motion. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that might ultimately uh, mean that they end up being consumed by their star, or that they might end up in a in a, a very small orbit. So there, there are people, we, we don't, we're not doing the work here for spin it, but there are yeah. people who work on planet formation theories to do very detailed simulations of that effect. But so that's something we obviously hope are to Are there any of these theories that could be complemented by a sort of spectroscopic signature? So I think, I think that the, the statistics we get from the number of, of planets from uh, missions like Tess mm -hmm. and Kepler, and there are also ground-based surveys doing this, NGTS, which is a UK-led survey. Yeah. So that they will provide, you know, uh, uh, many a lot of good statistics on on uh, planets close to their host star. There's yeah. other yeah. techniques like direct imaging and uh, gravitational lensing, which uh, which you know uh, work on other principles, which are, mm -hmm. are good at detecting planets further out. So assembling those statistics together is probably the best way of so it's building off as much as you can from all of the different resources, exactly. and then trying to do one big sort of collaborative yes. effort. Yeah, to, yeah uh, exactly. we're all cogs in a wheel. Yeah, so. <laughs> very good. I find it should be. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned so that you, that institute's been around for nine years or so. So how long do you expect it to be before you're doing observations, when to test, I, think, I believe it's already up now. It's up, Well, I think they are, they're, they're un still undergoing testing mm -hmm. uh, with, the, with the mission. I think it's now in its uh, final science orbit. There was, uh, okay. you know, they had to, it's in a very unusual orbit, so it required a slingshot trajectory around yeah. the moon, etc., to get into its final state. So I suspect now they're, they're testing all the instruments out and okay. kind of looking at the data, and, but they, they'll, they are scheduled to start reasonably soon, I think. Okay. Is that a very long-term mission? In, is it a couple uh, of years? It's or? a few years, yeah, I think. It's, it, yeah. Two years. Yeah. Okay. That's cool. Yeah, so you should get quite a bit of uh, data out of that then. You should, so, yeah. 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 And the good thing is you don't have to be a member of TESS. They're, they're yeah. going to release the data think the to the science community. That doesn't mean it should be the end of this year. Okay, so that's As I know, it, it starts from the Southern Hemisphere first, and it will go to Northern Hemisphere. I think, yeah, it's quite a good time to study the atmosphere mm. also, because the, this area, this field just starts. Just a uh, less than the case. I mm -hmm. think it's uh, the first one that we study uh, the GJ three four six. They will be doing my PhD. The mm -hmm. first one that start of the spinet. 
Okay. At that time, yeah. I think we feel better about the transmission spectroscopy. That is just four years ago, and it's just uh, I think it's very new. It's quite in its infancy at the moment. Yeah. 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 So we're really moving from a phase of merely detecting planets to to characterizing them. So that's really so that's a really exciting next generation thing to be a part of. Then I bet. Absolutely, and yeah. and. Uh, there's 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 also space missions that are uh, I'm thinking of one in particular. The European Space Agency has just given a green light to a mission called Ariel, okay. and that is going to be a characterization mission, which will be, you know, so it's a space mission, but it will be using techniques akin to transmission spectroscopy to to actually characterize exoplanets. So it's going to be a very big frontier over the coming decade or so. Well, that's a really exciting time, and it's, it must be really cool to be part of it. So thank you, Eamon and Superchai, for that. That sounds like a really exciting place to be uh, beginning in terms of these characterizations of these planets. So uh, I wish you good luck with that work. Thanks and I look forward to seeing some papers out soon, I hope. Cheers, now. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, Dave. Thanks about me. Now, our esteemed producer, Jake Staller Morgan, interviews Professor Boomruksa Thorntham about Narit. Princess Serinthorn's visit to JBO and the Thai Manchester collaboration. Hello, I'm Jake speaking to you today from Jodhpur Bank, and I'm lucky enough to be joined by a special guest. If you'd like to give yourself a brief introduction. My name is Bunraksa Serinthorn. I'm the research advisor of the National Astronomical Research Institute of Thailand. So that is NARIX for short, and I'm lucky enough to be working with NARIX. We have some collaborators mm-hmm. out there. So it's perhaps fair to say that most of our listeners won't have heard of your organisation, Professor. Yeah. So do you maybe want to expand a little bit about who you are and what you do out in Thailand? Yeah, actually I am one of the founders of the National Astronomical Research Institute of Thailand. Oh, wow. And yeah, it's maybe nearly 10 years ago when we tried to build the National Observatory on the highest mountain of Thailand. But in order to get the funding from the government of Thailand, we need to establish the institute. So we tried to set up the institute called the National Astronomical Research Institute of Thailand. And finally, it was founded on the 1st of January 2009. So this would be, well, coming to 10 years next year. Yeah, next year we're going to celebrate the 10th anniversary of NARIT. Ah, excellent. So in the last 10 years, we have developed several things. The main facility in Thailand is the Thai National Telescope. We managed to build the 2.4 meter optical telescope on the highest mountain of Thailand, we call the Thai National Telescope. And that's the biggest facility in the Southeast Asia. And we also try to get more human resources in astronomy. So I discussed with the Ministry of Science and Technology to offer the scholarship for the students to study astronomy abroad up to PhD. So we already sent maybe nearly 30 students abroad and they will come back and serve as the researcher at NAVIT.
finally they start to come back now so it's very much with an eye towards building up future generations of Thai astronomers right right so well I'm lucky enough to work with one of those well not a future he's now a current Thai astronomer right Dr. Superchai yeah he is one of our researchers now and he's been lucky enough to get us some time on that 2.4 yeah 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 is there anything more you could tell me about the facilities that have been developed? What, yeah. What else right. is going on yeah, in Thai astronomy? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Since 2017, we got the approval from the Thai government to set up a second astronomy facility in Thailand. That is the 40-meter radio telescope in Thailand. The 40-meter radio telescope is now under construction. And we have a lot of collaboration from the University of Manchester to help to advise on the construction of the radio telescope and perhaps in the future we're going to join to develop the many kind of receivers for the radio telescope. So I'm told that the collaborative history between Thailand and the University of Manchester mm-hmm. actually goes back a very long way. Yeah, Could you yeah. give us some insight on that? Yeah, that was in 1875, on the 6th of April 1875. That is a long way Yeah, one of the professors of the University of Manchester, Sir Arthur Schuster, was invited by King Rama V to travel to Siam. That time, the name of Thailand called Siam. So, Professor Schuster went with several of his staff and brought several telescopes and brought it to Thailand in the place called Lam Jawa in Petburi province. So that was a spectacular total solar eclipse in 1875. So he managed to get many results of the total solar eclipse and many of the royal family in Siam joined the observation at that time. So after that total solar eclipse event, Professor Schuster, he received the medals from our king. Many years ago, I went to the Department of Physics at the University of Manchester. I happened to see these kind of medals, and I suddenly recognized that this is the medal received by Sir Arthur Schuster, presented by the King of Thailand that time. So we have a very long collaboration. And when I was the director of NARIT many years ago, in 2006, I had the opportunity to visit the University of Manchester again. And I had the opportunity to sign the Memorandum of Understanding with the Georgia Bank Observatory at that time. And that started the collaboration. In that time, I spent a lot of time discussing about the possibility to build the radio telescope in Thailand. And we got a lot of advice. We got many visited from many staff of the University of Manchester to Thailand and discussed about the possibility. And finally, just last year, we managed to receive the budget from the Thai government to build a 40-meter radio telescope and many more technology that we need to develop to set up our radio telescope in the future.
under the collaboration with the University of Manchester. It's a collaboration that's been a long time in the making. Yeah, yeah. And also in 2016, we signed the MOU with the Science Technology Facility Council, or mm-hmm. SDFC. Under this collaboration, we got the support from the Newton Fund regarding the radio telescope project. So we have even more closer collaboration with the University of Manchester now for the development of the receivers for our 40-meter radio telescope. And fortunately, on 5th of July this year, Her Royal Highness Princess Mahajagrisinton will visit Georgia Bank Observatory to see the Lowell Telescope and to witness the collaboration between uh, NARIT and the University of Manchester. So this is a great occasion for uh, Thailand and United Kingdom for the closer collaboration on radio astronomy in the future. Sounds like it. So where do you anticipate the collaboration going in future after this occasion that we have here this week? Yeah. Are you able yeah. to talk about future plans at all? Yeah, yeah. Our radio telescope will... The working frequencies is from 300 megahertz to 115 gigahertz. So this is the wrong range of observational frequencies. So we have to develop many technology, especially the receiver technology. So I think University of Manchester Charter Bank Observatory is a good place for us for cooperate in developing those receiver in several wavelength bands. I, I must admit, I myself don't know much about radio astronomy. I'm not a radio astronomer myself, mm-hmm. but it sounds like a solid plan. Yeah, yeah. This is a big project under the collaboration between our two institutes in the future. I believe that we're going to raise up the standard of radio astronomy in Thailand in the future with the collaboration of the University of Manchester. What astronomy do you anticipate being able to do with this new radio telescope? What sort of work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. After the completion of the 40-meter telescope, we have the early key signs for this. The first key sign is a pulsar observation. So we're going to join with uh, many institutes around the world for uh, pulsar research. This is uh, very important. Object in the sky that emitted radio frequencies and we can detect with our 40-meter radio telescope. And this will lead to the insight of the theory of general relativity in the future. So this is very important key science. And the second one is the, to study of the major and molecular lines in the interstellar cloud, which emitted radiation in radio wavelength. So we're going to study of many kind of interstellar molecules to understand what is the composition of the interstellar molecules before they form the star. And we can also study of the possibility of the finding the living organism outside the Earth. So this is very interesting topics that we're going to do. So the early science we have two topics. One is the pulsar, and the second one is the major and molecular line observations. So, I'm maybe putting a little bit on my own bias here, but what about plans for optical astronomy? 
because I'm aware that there's a network of sub-meter class telescopes across Thailand and across the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, as I already mentioned, the main optical infrastructure is the 2.4 meter Thai National Telescope. That is the first one. And under that operation of the Thai National Telescope, we have several research topics under several international collaboration with many institutes in the world, including the University of Manchester. Mm -hmm. Dr. Superchai, he got a PhD from the University of Manchester and he studied about the exoplanet. The exoplanet is one of the interesting topics of research that we are doing at NARIC. Also, apart from the Thai National Telescope, we also built several we call the Remote Robotic Telescope Network or the Thai Robotic Telescope Network. So now we have several 0.7 meter optical telescope in many parts of the world. The first one is at the CGIO in Chile. That's the first one we joined with the University of North Carolina in the joint observation of the gamma ray burst. So we put one 0.7 meter telescope there for the Thai Robotic Telescope Network there. And then the second one, we joined with the Yunnan Observatory in China. So we put another 0.7 meter telescope at Gaomeigu Observatory in Lijian province in China. That's our second remote control telescope. And the third one, we finally put the telescope at a place called Sierra Remote Observatory in the United States, in San Francisco. So we have the third Thai robotic telescope over there. And the last one is at the place called Spring Brook Observatory in Australia, close to Siding Spring Observatory. And apart from the research, we also want to support education in astronomy in Thailand and also the outreach activity in Thailand. So we set up another four regional observatories. In the regional observatory, we built small planetarium with uh, 50 seats. We have a 0.7 meter optical telescope with many small optical telescopes to serve to the public. So we already built four public observatories or regional observatories in four sites in Thailand now. So we not only focus on the research, but we also want to promote education and outreach in astronomy in Thailand. Wow, by the sounds of it, Thai astronomy certainly has a very bright future. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, fortunately, the Thai government see how important to develop the basic science in Thailand. So astronomy is one of the subjects that can inspire the oh, young definitely. people. And they provide the knowledge in science and technology. So, uh, in my point of view, the smart people, they need two important things. The one is the uh, inspiration or the passion for science and technology, and the second one is the knowledge. So, astronomy can give both inspiration, passion in science and technology, and also the knowledge. So, astronomy can help people to develop these two skills to become the good person in science technology for Thailand in the future.
Thank you yeah. very much for your time. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much for your question. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that, Jake. Now we come to the part of the show where we fit in all those other bits we can't fit in anywhere else. The odds and ends. So, Joel, you're up first. So, Take it away, what do you got? So my odds and ends is about the Japanese Hayabusa 2 probe, which is ran by the Japanese space exploration agency called JETSA. And it's just recently released two rovers onto a small, well, small 3,000-foot-wide asteroid. Uh, that, that's, that's fairly small. Pretty small. I mean, um, like, you could build a house or two on it, you, you but could. I wouldn't want to... Well, you would want to. So, the pop- <laughs> okay. <laughs> so why not? Well, <laughs> this is completely this is unscripted. <laughs> We're just this naturally good. Okay, so the Japanese Hayabusa 2 probe, ran by JAXA, has released two small rovers onto the surface of the asteroids they're calling Ryugu. The two rovers are called Minerva 2-1A and Minerva 2-1B. But the very interesting thing about these two rovers is that neither of them have wheels. They don't roam around on the surface of the asteroid using wheels because the gravity is too low. So if they try to move around anywhere on wheels, they wouldn't get anywhere. So they're rovers that can't rove? No, they can rove. The way they rove <laughs> is uh, by bouncing between different bits of the asteroid. They're they hoppers. They hopper. Oh, they're, yeah. space they're space hoppers. They're space hoppers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really depressed that you got to say that first. So these two space hoppers, as we're now going to call them for the rest of the episode, are designed to uh, survey the asteroid, look around, and return photos back to JAXA. So they, they've launched the hoppers, they've got to the point where they think they've landed them, but because of the rotation oh, of so the asteroid... they bounce, right? Well, my word. <laughs> um, <they've, laughs> yes, they bounce. Uh, apparently they stay, when they're bouncing, they stay in the air for about 15 minutes at a time. So oh, they wow. bounce up, sort of float around until to the part of the asteroid they want to land down and then re-land. So how much control do they have, is it? Is, well, are, are, they, are they like micro-thrusters? And I think it looks RCS like they're, um, so from the, I don't know, it doesn't sound as dark, but from the images it looks like they're little uh, feet that sort of compress and push upwards. I imagine because the gravity is so low, they actually don't need that much force to take off. Oh, you know, I'm more interested in how um, they control the direction. Like, um, have you I got information have, on that? So I have an image of it. Okay. Um, it looks like multiple little feet on all, all around the sides. Ah, okay. So, the, so for the listeners at home, I'm sure we will provide a, an image of this. But it kind of resembles a, I guess I would describe this as a coliseum covered in solar panels with cranes coming off the sides. Surprisingly apt description. Yeah, that sounds very random. Yeah, (laughs) it sounds bizarre, but I promise you that if you look look at the picture that we will post, that is relatively accurate. I think it's interesting that in those 15 minutes, they only move 15 metres horizontally. Mm. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. It also says somewhere in there that they're only 7 inches in size, which is tiny. (laughs) Yeah, they're not... They're it's not, not exactly the Mars them. rover that NASA sent no. them, is it? Like, that was a chunky thing. These are... That's a CD. Mm-hmm. That is a, yeah. It's <laughs> a space, space frisbee. <laughs> space vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Is it EP or LP though? That's Ooh, the. I see. Yeah. Which is the smaller one? Because that's probably seven inches. Apparently they're completely autonomous as well. So they so they determine for themselves where they want to go and then jump around fifteen meters at a time for fifteen minutes. So oh, wait, hang on. Their decision. Are these space fleas? <laughs> oh my word! <laughs> just they are asteroids. <laughs> oh, what? This is insane. This is great. They kind of look almost sort of flea or bacteria like with the little uh with the little rods that Joel, Joel, we are an audio podcast. We've already tried to do this. I know, I know. <laughs> so what exactly is it they're trying to gain out of this? Because they, they so they've managed to land these rovers, they bounce around a lot, so what what is it they're actually researching? So I presume uh, there's a point. <laughs> <laughs> they don't just want space hoppers on a comet. <laughs> it's an asteroid it, it's an asteroid material survey. They're trying to analyse the dirt and gravel on the surface of the asteroid. Yeah, apologies, um, not a comet, asteroid. Asteroid, yeah, they're, so they're, sending, they're sending back uh, information about the surface of the asteroid and the composition of the dirt on the surface and what the surface actually looks like, and they're also surveying the, the texture of the actual asteroid itself and relaying that back. They haven't actually relayed back any images of the landing, so I don't think they know at this moment, because it was very recently when they deployed them. They released them on the 21st of September, which is today, as we are recording, at 12am. 12am what time? EDT. EDT. Oh, I can't be bothered to do that. 4.06 Greenwich Mean Time. Okay, so they've, they've been down for 12 hours as we're recording. Yeah. They don't have any images of the Minerva 2 one landing, of the rover's landing, because the asteroid rotates and so they went out of uh, communication. I think what the most interesting thing about this asteroid mission is the interesting movement technology in the in the rovers themselves. So we've joked about it being space hopper, but, but it's, like actually how, quite, it's actually yeah. quite useful. It's, it's actually quite interesting. I mean, wheels would never work in this kind of in this kind of setup. I'm aware that we're slightly rambly, so can you reiterate why wheels won't work for us? The gravity is very low on the asteroid, so if you try to, as soon as you move the wheels, the rover itself would hop, but you'd have no control about where it went. So you sort of run the wheels and they would just fly off the surface. I'm imagining an Armageddon-style film bouncing machine. Now. Very, very <laughs> much so, very yeah. much so. So if everything goes according to plan, if they have actually successfully landed these, the two robots will become one of the few craft to pull a soft touchdown on an asteroid, the other one being the near-Earth asteroid rendezvous Shoemaker spacecraft, which landed on Eros in 2001. Um, so what's the difference then between this and, uh, say, the Rosetta mission. Why is this new? The lander from the Rosetta mission was actually on a comet and is to date the only executed soft landing on a comet, whereas this is on an asteroid, of which there was another landing, the uh, again, the NASA asteroid rendezvous Shoemaker spacecraft. So the main difference is, is between asteroids and comets here. Anyway, should we move on to the next odd on end? Yeah, I, yes, let's move on. Thank you, Joel. No Niall, okay. what have you got for us? So, from space hoppers to artificial intelligence. Okay, so what I've brought along is there's these things out there called fast radio bursts. It's not my topic of study, so I don't know much about them, but neither do the people who work on them, because they're a very, very sort of difficult thing to that understand. Is fighting talk. <laughs> I challenge you to go over to the office and tell them that. Well, I've heard them say these exact words, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've catalogued a lot of these different things. They occur in all different uh, areas of space. They um, they appear in the, all over our sky as we uh, as we look out for them. However, there's lots of debate still as to what mechanism would be causing them. 
you know, there's possibilities that it could be coalescing neutron stars, and you know, there's a plethora of other ideas. But the point is today is that there's this new sort of techniques being developed using AI, and they've managed to use this to actually find another 72 pulses, uh, so 72 fast radio bursts, which are essentially very bright pulses of radio emission, which last milliseconds in duration. There's one in particular that's known for repeating, which is FRB 121-102, for those of you who are clued in about these things. This is the only one known to repeat, so it, it's quite a good one for being able to analyse these things in more detail, because you, you know you're going to get more and more to be able to, to view, which is why it's a good training data set for machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence as such. And using the Green Bank Telescope, a team in Berkeley, and also working with the SETI Institute, they have been looking at this repeater and have used it to train their algorithms and have in turn detected 72 new fast radio bursts emanating from the repeater, which is very exciting. And actually, it's managed to, uh, this sort of AI system has managed to find bursts, which a lot of the classical algorithms which are used were missing. 72 doesn't sound like many, but the population size of FRBs is actually quite small, isn't it? I'm not sure off the top of my head how many there have been found altogether. I find the really cool thing about FRBs to be, like, we only have one repeater. And so there's there are all sorts of theories as to what they can be. There's, so I, I, don't, I don't know, given these new numbers, I don't know if this, is, this actually holds true anymore, but Laura Dreesen, who presents with us sometimes, she... Knows a works. lot about FRBs. Yeah, she, works, she knows a lot about FRBs, <laughs> and perhaps we should have had her on this episode. But no, she she was telling me that um, there are more. There definitely were before this announcement. There were more theories as to what they could be than known examples of FRBs. And the repeater itself is really strange, just for this in its, in and of itself, because it's the only one that repeats. Mm-hmm. So we think that most FRBs, because they don't repeat, we think they're presumably cataclysmic, something's been destroyed, whereas the repeater it repeats. Something can't be destroyed and then repeatedly destroyed. That doesn't make any sense. Indeed. So this actually, the more data we have on the repeater, the more we're able to say, and if we found another repeater as well, obviously, we'd be able to say there's almost two kinds of populations here. And the things that we think of as generally FRBs, Turns out there's two completely separate. Indeed, there might actually be more than one mechanism causing similar emissions that are similar to like the, what we actually observe is similar. Yeah. yeah. So interesting enough, actually, the uh, the repeater has only been observed around 300 times since it was discovered. In as I think it's only bursts from it have only been detected around 300 times since about uh, 2012. And it was only upon reanalyzing 2017 data from Green Bank that these new, like, 72 were found. So that's actually quite a lot. Like, if you consider in, in the sort of, what's that, five, five years, it, there's only been 300 seen. And 72 of them were from this machine learning algorithm, finding them from just one year of data. So it, it, it's actually, it could well be that we're just missing a lot because I mean, it's that- not... That that is exactly what it is. I don't have the figures to hand, but the um, Laura has frequent. Like I think there's something like ten thousand flashes a day, or something, but just because they're so localized and the sky is so big, 
and radio dishes yep. are very narrow. Of course, so we can only point in one direction at a time, but it's like the whole of the sky is, could well be, well, it's likely that, that they're going to be missing across. There's no known reason why it should just be in, say, one particular hemisphere or well, one particular orientation. So they are, they are thought to be isotropic, and the only reason that we've found more in the southern hemisphere is because we have Greenbank pointing that way yeah. and more dishes down there, yeah, exactly. etc., that are actually looking for them and gauged for doing this. Yes, so you end up with a bias, don't you, towards the towards the directions you can actually look in. Yes, we should always be aware <laughs> of our biases. Indeed. So, as we uh, become more and more dependent on robots to help us out in everyday life, you'll see actually we're becoming more and more dependent on them in science too. Like, AI is the way forward for big data challenges. Oh, yeah, like 100%. There are, what, we, we've got the big data CDT here now as well? We do, we do. So, like, yeah, Manchester have just started taking on PhD students who, like, specifically are working in, say, machine learning and exactly. have... Machine learning lunches brought to you by um, our very own Alex Clark, which are great because they involve pizza and sometimes other buffets. But I missed one today. That was sad. That I am now rambling. Well, I, I think uh, machine learning is definitely the way forward, though. That's, that's what our robot be. overlords told us to say. <laughs> <laughs> yes, our robot overlord so, is called Jake. <laughs> <laughs> so from big data to Mr. Data. Hey! <laughs> so, oh, thank you, Niall. So... Yeah, finally, I have a very quick, fun, odd and end, which is odds and ends, the final frontier. So <laughs> this is a, um, a line that was just fed to me by Joel. We have discovered, or we, people, American astronomers, Bomar and Matt Mutisbov, have discovered a planet which is of interest to my Trekkie friend in the studio, Joel. Hello. This is around the star 40 Eridani A. Is that is that noteworthy to you? Apparently, it's supposed to be where Vulcan is, but yeah. I, I've never heard this before. So I have people, presumably, someone somewhere with more time on their hands than I have, has sat down and worked out from the Star Trek star charts what star should be where the star that Vulcan goes orbits around is. Is, is it not named as that star in the show? Presumably, but I don't I don't think so. I think it's probably in some sort of Star Trek technical manual. There's a lot of literature on tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of different Star Trek books and stuff and, and TV show and technical manuals and interviews with people and cast members and crew. Like, I assume... Uh, it, this, like, it's, this, not, it's not like a, a really generally known thing. I, I okay, think, this, this has turned into slight character assassination yeah. of Star Trek. But so anyway... Vulcan is supposed to be in a triple star system. Yes, so, no, it is. So this is, right, I'll, I'll it go... It genuinely is. Yeah, no, so, <laughs> so yes, this is this is supposedly Vulcan. So there's, oh, so Star, star Trek creators eventually associated the planet Vulcan with a real star, which is called 40 Eridani A. Mm, um, so okay. it's part of a triple star system. And since the Star Trek creators, they, cho they chose what was known at the time as, as a triple star system. Since they chose that, obviously various people have gone, maybe there is a planet there, and it turns out there is. That's um, very exciting. Yes. Oh, so, is it in the habitable zone? No. Oh. Um, so, <laughs> this, 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 is, this is the sad part. Um, so, but the really cool thing about this is that um, the, the star system itself can be seen with the naked eye. So you don't even need binoculars to look at the star. Obviously, to look at the planet, you need 
something way beyond what we have. But they um, like on a clear night, if you go out in the dark, obviously at night, but like away from street lamps, you will be able to see 40 Eridani A. Which... So this is in our galaxy then? Uh, yes, Sorry. it's located about 16 light years away from the Earth. Um, of course it's in our galaxy. So I thought it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, and far that's away. Star Wars. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I think oh I... my word. <laughs> I thought um, they went to deep space in, in the Voyager missions. Deep, they go to a different quadrant of the galaxy in Voyager. Sorry, deep space? Deep space. Deep anyway, space we're anywhere outside of the solar system. Stop! <laughs> so, this is, as Joel has said a few times, this is a triple star system. Triple star systems, I think, are really cool, because like, I don't quite... I can't get my head around how that all rotates. I have, like... Is it like a space fidget spinner? That's the closest I've got in my head to just... Ro- what, what are they orbits? I don't know. Um, they orbit are they like triaxial, aren't they? Like yeah. yeah. Clusters are. I, gu- I guess. I, space is weird. It blows my mind. I love it. It's just easier to do planets and go, planet goes around blob, mm. rotatey, rotatey. That is... I mean, that's a simplification. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know. Those words are going to be in my thesis. Um, I really hope so. <laughs> But it's quite cool that this they have this planet that it's in a triple star system. So it's unlike Tatooine, say in Star Wars, where you have two suns, this one has three. And you'll be able to see them at different times. And I, I'm not really quite sure... You're calling a spade a spade here, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> there's, there's not a huge amount that you can spin this out from. But I just, it's, it's Star Trek related. Joel looks happy. I've never seen an episode of Star Trek except for Star Trek Discovery. Mm. Um, so how did they discover this? Because you, you're likely to know a bit more about that, given your PhD topic. This was discovered through the radial velocity method. So this is looking at how it's not, when you have a planet going around a star, it's not just as simple as that. It's both of them orbit their centre of mass. And that makes the host star wobble, which means that you get Doppler shifting of characteristic emission lines. So not unlike when you've got a an ambulance going past and the siren goes slightly exaggerated and can't believe I've just done that on a podcast but yeah it, it was discovered through radial velocity so the new planet itself is about twice the size of Earth and its year is 42 Earth days do we know how large the stars are? Uh, it would be interesting trying to use radial velocity when they've got three stars because if, if you're using wobble of the star oh I, like I, right I so I'm I'm I've look, I'm looking at the paper now and the good thing is though that because it's a triple star system the planet is a lot closer to its host star than the stars are to each other okay. so whilst the stars are bigger like gravity falls as one over r squared right so the effect is slightly more noticeable they're also k-dwarfs so they're relatively small stars but yeah it's a fair point I have actually said that this isn't in the habitable zone a couple of times, but it's unclear as to whether or not it actually is. The problem with the habitable zone is that it's not a hard and fast, if you're here, you will have alien life. There are so many other things that you have to consider. So there are, I can't remember the names of all of them, but there are various habitable zones that if you look for liquid water, water can exist. But you can also have habitable zones where you are looking at the ultraviolet flux from this host star so for stars that are particularly ultraviolet heavy where you would put your planet for liquid water to exist if you put it there everything would get effectively really bad sunburn 
and it's not, that's not where you want to live. Nothing would live there. So saying this is oh, maybe plants. Well, even then, like if you, if you expose plants to too much ultraviolet, they burn. Like oh, you're talking about really intense. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm I'm I'm, I'm okay. talking like factor two thousand would not be enough. I see. The discoverers think that this planet is slightly too close to be in the liquid water habitable zone, but they're actually they're kind of pinning down other things as well. So we. Well, Vulcan was a desert world in Star Trek. Well, there we go. This might actually be... The Vulcan. The Vulcan. Like I say, I've never seen it. Um, <laughs> I'm a Stargate man myself. Um, but the, So they're looking at whether or not, not just the water habitable zone, but also where does it fall in terms of the ultraviolet habitable zone? Or are there? Is, would it be possible for, say, underground liquid water to exist? There we go, that's that phrase. Right. Um so, I mean, like, you can have liquid water existing in places where generally it shouldn't. So, for instance, we think there might be or liquid water on Titan under ice sheets. So, liquid water's still there, but it's in a different... It might be tough to yeah. live long and prosper. Yes, yeah. precisely. So, in conclusion, because I'm not going to top that, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, we may have found Vulcan. We may not have found Vulcan... We may have found it around a star that some authors decided they were going to make a fictitious planet. So, but hopefully with a little less sci-fi and a little more sci-fact, here is Nsong Lee and George Bendo with Ask an Astronomer. Uranzaya at ScienceX asks, how was the first telescope created and why? So there's been a lot written about the creation of the telescope. Uh, I used an article written by Lauren Cox for Space.com and another article on the American Institute of Physics website as references and looking up information on this answer. So a very simple telescope consists of two lenses arranged with one behind the other. Uh, so it's relatively straightforward to make a telescope, and if you have two different lenses at home, you can try lining them up, and you may need to play with the spacing between the two, but if you get the spacing right, you should eventually be able to make your own telescope. Now, the key part is when did people figure out when to do this and how. So lenses themselves uh, have potentially been around since the time of ancient Egypt, Greece, and Rome. And they became particularly popular in Europe in the medieval ages. But it's likely that no one ever tried arranging the two lenses in the tube to make a telescope until either the late 1500s or early 1600s. The exact time when the first telescope was created this way is unclear, but the first written description of the telescope was in 1608, when Hans Lippersche applied to the government of the Netherlands for a patent for his telescope design. Now, it's not clear what he in originally intended to do with the telescope, and as best as I can tell from what's written about it, it was just maybe novelty more than anything else. Although it's possible that it may have also been used for uh, maritime purposes. So being able to see ships on the horizon coming into port. 
Galileo Galilei was the first person to seriously use the telescope for astronomy, and he actually designed his first telescope in 1609. So very soon after, uh, the first telescope patent was filed. David Findlay asks, can you explain the equivalent of visual magnitude as applied to radio astronomy? Is there an equivalent to limiting magnitude with radio telescopes? So this is a two-part question, which is going to take a bit of time to answer. First of all, uh, we need to understand what magnitudes are. So magnitudes are a funny set of units that uh, a lot of astronomers, including me, personally dislike. Uh, magnitudes indicate the amount of light from an object with apparent magnitudes indicating the relative brightness of objects as seen from Earth, and absolute magnitude indicating the brightness if the object was 10 parsec or 32.6 light years from Earth, which can be difficult to picture for galaxies which are much, much larger than 10 parsecs. A change in magnitude of 2.5 corresponds to a factor of 10 change in the amount of energy from the object. And as objects get brighter, their magnitude decreases. So, for example, a bright star in the night sky will have an apparent magnitude of 0 or 1, while the faintest stars that people can see with the naked eye have an apparent magnitude of 5 or 6, and the sun has an apparent magnitude of negative 26. Radio astronomers, as well as many other astronomers, avoid using magnitudes, but instead use units based on standard scientific units of measurement. The absolute amount of energy over time produced by an object can be expressed as watts, or some other quantity related to watts. Solar luminosities, which are based on the total energy produced over time by the sun, are very commonly used. One solar luminosity equals 3.83 times 10 to the 26th power watts, or a 3, an 8, and a 3, followed by 24 zeros. The amount of energy observed from an astronomical object by a telescope on Earth is called flux, and this can be thought of as the total amount of energy collected over the area of a telescope over a set period of time. Typical units that a lot of astronomers may use in this situation would be watts divided by meters squared. However, astronomers also collect this area over some range of the electromagnetic spectrum rather than at one very specific wavelength. So they will normally divide the total energy by the range in wavelength or frequency in which the energy was collected as well as divide by time and divide by collecting area. This quantity is called flux density. Typical units could be watts per meter squared per hertz, but the flux densities measured by telescopes are actually very small in these units. So instead, a lot of astronomers, including most radio astronomers, use units called Janskys, which are equal to 10 to the negative 26th power watts per meter squared per hertz, or a zero, a decimal point, 25 more zeros, and a one. As a side note, as an undergraduate, I had a friend, a guy named Matt Morgan, 
who wrote this definition in large block letters on the wall in his dorm's bathroom. It is possible to convert from Janskys to magnitudes, even at radio frequencies, using the same conversion equations that are applied to visible light, but it would just seem really strange for just about everyone. Generally, magnitudes are an unintuitive unit of measurement that decrease in value when things get brighter. And trying to perform physics calculations using magnitudes, which are base 10 logarithms multiplied by 2.5, gets unnecessarily complicated. So most astronomers just use Janskys or some other units based on standard scientific units. So this should answer the first part of David's question about uh, the equivalence of visual magnitudes in radio astronomy. However, David also asks if radio telescope observations also have the equivalent to the limiting magnitude in optical telescope observations. For reference, the limiting magnitude is the apparent magnitude for the faintest objects that can be seen in visible light data. And instead of calling this limiting magnitude, which applies to data where people actually use the magnitude system, I would call this the brightness limit at which sources can be detected when discussing data at any wavelength. As I mentioned before, for naked eye observations, the limiting magnitude of the objects that you can see in the sky is an apparent magnitude of 5 or 6. This depends on where you're located and uh, how well your eyes have adjusted to the darkness. The faintest objects that can be seen in any particular professional astronomy image in any part of the electromagnetic spectrum, including visible light, will depend on several things, including the size of the telescope, the efficiency of the detectors, and the amount of time that is spent observing any given location in the sky. Each image will therefore have its own limit at which sources can be detected. Now the exception to this are telescopes and instruments that are so sensitive they can actually detect everything to what is called the confusion limit. This limit is where so many sources are detected that they look like static in the image background. Several years ago, when the Herschel Space Observatory was operational, I worked as a support scientist for the Spire instrument on that telescope, and the Spire instrument could easily produce images that were confusion limited at submillimeter wavelengths. So, in a part of the electromagnetic spectrum where the wavelengths range from uh, 0.25 millimeters to 0.50 millimeters. Any source brighter than about 20 millijanskys could be treated like a detection. Everything else was part of the background. Graham asks, now that we know gravitational redshift occurs, does this also mean that the speed of light is not necessarily a constant? Well, the very short answer to this is no. The longer answer, which is affected by general relativity, is no. The even longer answer involves using general relativity as a part of the explanation. 
For reference, gravitational redshifting is was predicted to happen by general relativity when light emitted in a place with a strong gravitational field, such as near a black hole, travels to a location with much weaker or virtually no gravitational field, such as interstellar space. This has recently been observed for stars observing the supermassive black hole at the center of the galaxy, which is what prompted Graham to send in this question. The photon that is produced near the black hole will change as it emerges from the area around the black hole so that its wavelength appears to get longer and its frequency gets lower. So I thought of this situation by imagining an old-fashioned mechanical clock with an electrically charged pendulum that's swinging back and forth. And this pendulum may have a period which uh, just for simplicity, I assume to be one second, just because that seems to make the math very simple. The electrical charge on the pendulum, when observed by someone standing right next to the clock and not moving relative to the clock, will produce an electromagnetic wave with a frequency of one hertz and a wavelength of 300,000 kilometers. So very long wave and probably very difficult to detect with technology, but it's still producing a wave. Now, according to general relativity, time will appear to pass more slowly in a location with a strong gravitational field, like the area near a black hole, when observed from location with a much weaker gravitational field, like interstellar space or the solar system. If the clock is near the black hole, but the observer is in interstellar space, the pendulum will appear to move much more slowly. For example, the pendulum may oscillate with a period like two or five or 10 seconds. The charge of the pendulum still creates an electromagnetic wave as it oscillates, but the wave observed in interstellar space appears to have a lower frequency like 0.5 or 0.2 or 0.1 hertz. And this is because from the viewpoint near stellar space, the source that's moving uh, or the moving charge just seems to be going more slowly. In relativity, the speed of light in the vacuum does not change. Now speed is a function of wavelength multiplied by frequency so if the frequency decreases because of time dilation, then wavelength must increase. Therefore, the electromagnetic wave produced by the charged clock pendulum appears to get longer as it emerges from the area of the black hole and can stretch from the already large length of 300,000 kilometers to 600,000 or 1.2 million or 3 million kilometers or even longer. So to summarize, the observation of gravitational redshifting actually proves that the speed of light obeys general relativity. In other words, the speed of light is still constant. For reference, in the February 2018 extra episode, I also discussed measurements of the speed of light in the early universe as compared to the present. Some physicists and astronomers have questioned whether this could change over the evolution of the universe. And the short answer is no. Thanks for that, Insomna George. 
And we're going to come on now to the feedback. So we've had a lovely postcard from Ellen, who has been on a trip to Kielder Observatory. So she has actually given a note to all of our listeners to go and visit her. So go and visit Kielder Observatory. Horizontal rain meant we couldn't have a go on the 16-inch telescopes, but they did get to hold Mars and the Moon. I have no context wow, for that, but that, that sounds incredible. Really strong. Yes. <laughs> so um, we've actually had um, Hayden Goodfellow from Kielder as an interviewee during our EWAS NAM special. I think Emma had a chat with him. He's very nice, and I'm sure everyone at Kielder is. I've heard very good things about it, and it's an excellent place to go. Keep up the awesome podcasts and jot on. So thank you, Alan. We've also had a bit of uh, chatter about our new studio. So part of the reason we're a little bit all over the place is we're kind of in a new environment and we're all very simple. So that's kind of thrown us. <laughs> there's, too there's too much space and it there's, scares me. There's too much space and it feels like we're, we're valued. But it's really oh nice, no. but it's thrown me. We, um, there's a window. There's a, yeah, it's, it's all very exciting. Yeah. We're not just in like a broom closet anymore. <laughs> no. <laughs> but yeah, we've had a few of you commenting on our new studio. So yeah, Joel, have you got so, any? Yeah, Ellen Brooker says uh, just the word exciting with an exclamation mark after. It definitely is. It is very <laughs> exciting. And Mark Shaw says, would you like a picture of noxalucent clouds to put up on the wall? We would say yes to that, but it states would go berserk if we keep sticking things up on the wall. Yeah, we're um, we're still in talks as to whether or not we're allowed to put up soundproofing and things. But we've got a load of new equipment that's just arrived, and like we're recording this on new mics. I don't know how this sounds. Does this sound any different to you? Please, please write in and tell us. <laughs> Does this sound better? Does this sound worse? We've got a few other bits and bobs from Facebook. Niall, have you got yeah, something there? So I've got Daniel Grinock. Apologies if I pronounced that wrong. Um, he said, I hope this new luxury doesn't steal from the flavour of the show. Silk slippers tend to telegraph the downfall of great peoples. So um, our producer has said he's got no intention of letting that happen. But there may be the odd audio issue as we work with the new space, so bear with us. And I think based on today's episode, you really do need to bear with us. (laughs) (laughs) And we've also got from uh, Teresa Arispe. Again, apologies if I pronounced that wrong. Ooh, it's lovely. Congratulations. Thanks. So we've had a tweet from David Alt, who our long-time listeners may remember as one of the Jodcast founding fathers. So he's tweeted us, um, I remember the days, grumble, grumble, grumble. Seriously, guys, that's brilliant. Enjoy. Colon, hyphen, close brackets, which I'm reliably reliably informed, if you rotate, the result is a smiley face. So if you want to get in touch with us, and please do, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com forward slash jodcast. YouTube, youtube.com slash jodcast. Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us post and the address is on the website. So that's all we've got time for this episode. So thank you to uh, Professor Boonrock, Sarsin Thorntham, Dr. Eamon Kerrant and Dr. Superchai Awefan for the interviews. The editors were Joke Starberg Morgan, George Bendo, Emma Alexander and Adam Averson. The producer was Jake Starberg Morgan. Until next time, Shot on! on.